Chapter Seven of Mr. Prohack by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Seven, The Sympathetic Quack. One. The next morning, Mr. Prohack had a unique shock, for he was awakened by his wife coming into the bedroom. She held a big piece of cake in her hand. Never before had Mrs. Prohack been known to rise earlier than her husband. Also, the hour was eight-twenty, whereas never before had Mr. Prohack been known, on a working day, to rise later than eight o'clock. He realised with horror that it would be necessary for him to hurry. Still, he did not jump up. He was not a brilliant sleeper, and he had had a bad night, which had only begun to be good at the time when, as a rule, he woke finally for the day. He did not feel very well, despite the fine sensation of riches which rushed reassuringly into his arms the moment consciousness returned. "'Arthur,' said Mrs. Prohack, who was in her Chinese robe, "'do you know that girl hasn't been home all night? Her bed hasn't been slept in.' "'Neither has mine,' answered Mr. Prohack. "'What girl?' "'Sissy, of course.' "'Ah, Sissy,' murmured Mr. Prohack, as if he had temporarily forgotten that such a girl existed. "'Didn't I tell you last night she mightn't be back?' "'No, you didn't, and you know very well you didn't. "'Honestly,' said Mr. Prohack, meaning dishonestly, as most people do in similar circumstances, "'I thought I did. "'Do you suppose I should have slept one wink if I'd thought Sissy wasn't coming home?' "'Yes, I do. The death of Nelson wouldn't keep you awake. "'And now either I shall be late at the office, or else I shall go without my breakfast. "'I think you might have wakened me.' Mrs. Prohack, munching the cake despite all her anxieties, replied in a peculiar tone, "'What does it matter if you are late at the office?' Mr. Prohack reflected that all women were alike in a lack of conscience where the public welfare was concerned. He was rich, therefore he was entitled to neglect his duty to the nation. A pleasing argument! Mr. Prohack sat up, and Mrs. Prohack had a full view of his face for the first time that morning. "'Arthur!' she exclaimed, absolutely and in an instant forgetting both cake and daughter. "'You're ill!' He thought how agreeable it was to have a wife who was so marvellously absorbed in his being. There was something uncanny, something terrible, in it. "'Oh, no, I'm not,' he said. "'I swear I'm not. I'm very tired, but I'm not ill. Get out of my way.' "'But your face is as yellow as a cheese,' protested Eve, frightened. "'It may be,' said Mr. Prohack. "'You won't get up. I shall get up." Eve snatched her hand-mirror from the dressing-table and gave it to him with a menacing gesture. He admitted to himself that the appearance of his face was perhaps rather alarming at first sight, but really he did not feel ill, he only felt tired. "'Oh, it's nothing. Liver!' He made a move to emerge from the bed. "'Exercise is all I want.' He saw Eve's lips tremble. He saw tears hanging in her eyes. These phenomena induced in him the sensation of having somehow committed a solecism or a murder. He withdrew the move to emerge. She was hurt and desperate. He at once knew himself defeated. He thought how annoying it was to have a woman in the house who was so marvellously absorbed in his being. She was wrong, but her unreasoning desperation triumphed over his calm sagacity. "'Telephone for Dr. Vega, said Mrs. Prohack to Machin, for whom she had rung. V-E-I-G-A. Bruton Street. He's in the book. 
and asked him to come along as soon as he can to see Mr. Prohack. Now Mr. Prohack had heard of, but never seen, Dr. Vega. He had more than once listened to the Portuguese name on Eve's lips, and the man had been mentioned more than once at the club. Mr. Prohack knew that he was, if not a foreigner, of foreign descent, and hence he did not like him. Mr. Prohack took kindly to foreign singers and cooks, but not to foreign doctors. Moreover, he had doubts about the fellow's professional qualifications. Therefore, he strongly resented his wife's most singular and startling order to Machin, and as soon as Machin had gone, he expressed himself. "'Anyway,' he said curtly, after several exchanges, "'I shall see my own doctor, if I see any doctor at all, which is doubtful.' Eve's response was to kiss her husband, a sisterly rather than a wifely kiss. And she said, in a sweet, noble voice, "'It's I that want Dr. Vega's opinion about you, and I must insist on having it. And what's more, you know I've never cared for your friend Dr. Plot. He never seems to be interested. He scarcely listens to what you have to say. He scarcely examines you. He just makes you think your health is of no importance at all, and it doesn't really matter whether you're ill or well, and that you may get better or you mayn't, and that he'll humour you by sending you a bottle of something.' "'Stuff,' said Mr. Prohack. "'He's a first-rate fellow. No infernal nonsense about him.' And what do you know about Vega? I should like to be informed. I met him at Mrs. Cundiff's. He cured her of cancer. You told me Mrs. Cundiff hadn't got cancer at all. Well, it was Dr. Vega who found out she hadn't, and stopped the operation just in time. She says he saved her life, and she's quite right. He's wonderful. Mrs. Prohack was now sitting on the bed. She gazed at her husband's features with acute apprehension, and yet with persuasive grace. "'Oh, Arthur,' she murmured, "'you are a worry to me.' Mr. Prohack, not being an ordinary Englishman, knew himself beaten, for the second time that morning. He dared not trifle with his wife in her earnest, lofty mood. "'I bet you Vega won't come,' said Mr. Prohack. "'He will come,' said Mrs. Prohack blandly. "'How do you know?' "'Because he told me he'd come at once if ever I asked him. He's a perfect dear.' "'Oh, I know the sort.' Mr. Prohack said sarcastically. "'And you'll see the fee he'll charge. "'When it's a question of health, money doesn't matter.' "'It doesn't matter when you've got the money. "'You'd never have dreamed of having Vega this time yesterday. "'You wouldn't need to have sent for old Plot.' Mrs. Prohack merely kissed her husband again, with a kind of ineffable resignation. Then Machin came in with her breakfast, and said that Dr. Vega would be round shortly, and was told to telephone to the Treasury that her master was ill in bed. "'And what about my breakfast?' the victim inquired with irony. "'Give me some of your egg.' "'No, dearest, egg is the very last thing you should have with that colour.' "'Well, if you'd like to know, I don't want any breakfast. Couldn't eat any.' "'There you are,' Mrs. Prohack exclaimed triumphantly. "'And yet you swear you aren't ill. That just shows it would be quite the best thing for you not to take anything until Dr. Vega's been.' Mr. Prohack, helpless, examined the ceiling, and decided to go to the office in the afternoon. He tried to be unhappy, but couldn't. Eve was too funny, too delicious, too exquisitely and ingenuously firm, too blissful in having him at her mercy for him to be unhappy. To say nothing of the hundred thousand pounds. And he knew that Eve also was secretly revelling in the hundred thousand pounds. Dr. Vega was her first bite at it. 
too. Considering that he was well on the way to being a fashionable physician, Dr. Vega arrived with a surprising promptitude. Mrs. Brohack wondered what hold Eve had upon him, and how she had acquired it. He was prejudiced against the fellow, before he came into the bedroom, simply because Eve, on hearing the noise of a car and a doorbell, had hurried downstairs, and a considerable interval had elapsed between the doctor's entrance into the house and his appearance at the bedside. Mr. Brohack guessed easily that those two had been plotting against him. Strange how Eve could be passionately loyal and basically deceitful simultaneously. The two-faced creature led the doctor forward with a candid smile that partook equally of the smile of a guardian angel and the smile of a cherub. She was an unparalleled comedian. Dr. Vega was fattish and rather shabby, about sixty years of age. He spoke perfectly correct English with a marked foreign accent. His demeanour was bland, slightly familiar, philosophical and sympathetic. Dr. Plock's eyes would have said, This is my thirteenth visit this morning, and I've eighteen more to do, and it's all very tedious. Why do you people let yourselves get ill, if it's a fact that you really are ill? I don't think you are, but I'll see. Dr. Vega's eyes said, How interesting your case is. You've had no luck this time. We must make the best of things, but also we must face the truth. God knows I don't want to boast, but I expect I can put you right, with the help of your own strong common sense. Mr. Prohack, a connoisseur in human nature, noted the significances of the Vega glance, but he suspected that there might also be something histrionic in it. Dr. Vega examined heart, pulse, tongue. He tapped the torso. He asked many questions. Then he took an instrument out of a leather case which he carried, and fastened a strap round Mr. Prohack's forearm, and attached it to the instrument, and presently Mr. Prohack could feel the strong pulsations of the blood current in his arm. "'Dear, dear,' said Dr. Vega, "'one hundred and seventy-five. Blood pressure too high. Much too high. Must get that down.' Eve, Eve looked as though the end of the world had been announced, and even Mr. Prohack had qualms. Ten minutes earlier Mr. Prohack had been a strong, healthy man, a trifle unwell in a bedroom. He was suddenly transformed into a patient in a nursing home. "'A little guitar,' said Dr. Vega. "'I've got no guitar,' said Mr. Prohack, with conviction. "'Yes, yes, guitar of the stomach. Probably had it for years. The duodenum is obstructed. A little accident that easily happens.' He addressed himself, as it were, privately to Mrs. Prohack. "'The duodenum is no thicker than that.' He indicated the pencil with which he was already writing in a pocket-book. "'We'll get it right.' "'What is the duodenum?' Mr. Prohack wanted to cry out but he was too ashamed to ask. It was hardly conceivable that he, so wise, so prudent, had allowed over forty years to pass in total ignorance of this important item of his own body. He felt himself to be a bag full of disconcerting and dangerous mysteries. Or he might have expressed it that he had been smoking in criminal nonchalance for nearly half a century on the top of a powder magazine. He was deeply impressed by the rapidity and assurance of the doctor's diagnosis. It was wonderful that the queer fellow could in a few minutes single out an obscure organ no bigger than a pencil and say, There is the ill. The fellow might be a quack, but sometimes quacks were men of genius. His shame and his alarm quickly vanished under the doctor's reassuring and bland manner. So much so that when Dr. Vega had written out a prescription, Mr. Prohack said lightly, 
I suppose I could get up, though. To which Dr. Vega amiably replied, I shall leave that to you. Perhaps if I tell you you'll be lucky if you don't have jaundice. But I think you will be lucky. I'll try to look in again this afternoon. These last words staggered both Mr. and Mrs. Prohack. I've been expecting this for years. I knew it would come, Mrs. Prohack breathed tragically. And even Mr. Prohack reflected aghast. My God, doctor, calling twice a day. True, duodenum was a terrible word. Mr. Prohack gazed at Dr. Vega as at a high priest, and waited to be vouchsafed a further message. Anyhow, if I find it impossible to call, I'll telephone in any case, said Dr. Vega. Some slight solace in this. Mrs. Prohack, like an acolyte, personally attended the high priest as far as the street, listening with acute attention to his recommendations. When she returned, she put on a carefully bright face. Evidently she had decided, or had been told, that cheerfulness was essential to ward off jaundice. "'Now that's what I call a doctor,' said she, "'to think of your friend Plot. "'I've telephoned for a messenger-boy to go to the chemist's.' "'You're at liberty to call the man a doctor,' answered Mr. Prohack, "'and I'm at liberty to call him a fine character-actor.' "'I knew the moment you sat up it was jaundice,' said Mrs. Prohack. "'Well,' said Mr. Prohack, "'I lay you five to one I don't have jaundice. "'Not that you'd ever pay me if you lost.' Mrs. Prohack said, "'When I saw you were asleep at a, after eight o'clock this morning, I knew there must be something serious. I felt it. However, as the doctor says, if we take it seriously, it will soon cease to be serious.' "'He's not a bad phrase-maker,' said Mr. Prohack. In the late afternoon Dr. Vega returned, like an old and familiar acquaintance, with his confident air of saying, "'We can manage this affair between us, I am almost sure.' Mr. Prohack felt worse, and the room, lighted by one shaded lamp, had begun to look rather like a real sick-room. Mr. Prohack, though he mistrusted the foreign accent, the unprofessional appearance, and the adventurous manner, was positively glad to see his new doctor, and indeed felt that he had need of succour. "'Yes,' said Dr. Vega, after investigation, "'my opinion is that you'll escape jaundice. In four or five days you ought to be as well as you were before the attack. I don't say how well you were before. Mr. Prohack instantly felt better. It will be very awkward if I can't get back to the office early next week, said he. I'm sure it will, Dr. Vega agreed. And it might be still more awkward if you went back to the office early next week, and then never went any more. What do you mean? Dr. Vega smiled understandingly at Mrs. Prohack as though he and she were the only grown-up persons in the room. "'Look here,' he addressed the patient, "'I see I shall have to charge you a fee for telling you what you know as well as I do. The fact is, I get my living by doing that. How old are you?' Forty-six. "'Every year of the war counts double, so you're over fifty. A difficult age. You can run an engine ten hours a day for fifty years. But it's fawn, it's second-hand.' And if you keep on running it ten hours a day, you'd soon discover how worn it is. But you could run it five hours a day for another twenty years with reasonable safety and efficiency. That's what I wanted to tell you. You aren't the man you were, Mr. Prohack. You've lost the trick of getting rid of your waste products. You say you feel tired. Why do you feel tired? 
Being tired simply means being clogged. The moment you feel tired, your waste products are beginning to pile up. Look at those finger joints. Waste products. Friction. Why don't you sleep well? You say the more tired you are, the worse you sleep, and you seem surprised. But you're only surprised because you haven't thought it out. Morpheus himself wouldn't sleep if his body were a mass of friction-producing waste products from top to toe. You aren't a body and soul, Mr. Prohack. You're an engine. I wish you'd remember that and treat yourself like one. The moment you feel tired, stops the engine. If you don't, it'll stop itself. It pretty nearly stopped today. You need lubrication, too. The best lubricant is a tumbler of hot water four times a day. And don't take coffee or any salt except what your cook puts into the dishes. Don't try to be cleverer than nature. Don't think the clock is standing still. It isn't. If you treat yourself as well as you treat your watch, you'll bury me. If you don't, I shall bury you. All that I've told you I know by heart, because I'm saying it to men of your age every day of my life. Mr. Brohack felt like a reprimanded schoolboy. He feared the wrath to come. Don't you think my husband ought to take a long holiday? Eve put in. Well, of course he ought, said Dr. Vega, opening both mouth and eyes in protest against such a silly question. Uh, six months? Or at least. Where ought he to go? Oh, doesn't matter. Portugal, the Riviera, Switzerland. But it's not the season yet for any of these places. If he wants to keep on pleasant terms with nature, he'll get out his car and motor about his own country for a month or two. After that he might go to the continent. But, of course, he won't, I know, these official gentlemen. If you ask them to disturb their routine, they'll die first. They really would sooner die. Very natural, of course. Routine is their drug. My husband will take six months' holiday, said Eve quietly. I suppose you could give the proper certificate. You see, in these government departments, I'll give you the certificate tomorrow. Mr. Prohack was pretending to be asleep, or at least to be too fatigued and indifferent to take notice of this remarkable conversation. But as soon as Dr. Vega had blandly departed under the escort of Eve, he slipped out of bed and cautiously padded to the landing where there was a bookcase. Duodenum, duodenum, must be something to do with twelve. Then he found a dictionary and brought it back into the bedroom and consulted it. So it's twelve inches long, is it? he murmured. He had just time to plunge into bed and pitch the dictionary onto the bed before his wife returned. 3. She was bending over him. Darling! He opened his deceiving eyes. Her face was within a foot of his. How do you feel now? I feel, said he, that this is the darndest swindle that ever was. If I hadn't come into a fortune, I should have been back at the office the day after tomorrow. In about eight hours, with the help of that Portuguese mountebank, you've changed me from a sane, normal man into a blooming valetudinarian who must run all over the earth in search of health. I've got to winter somewhere, have I? You'll see. It's absolutely incredible. It's more like masculine and cooks than anything I ever came across. He yawned. He knew that it was the disturbed duodenum that caused him to yawn, and that also gave him a dry mouth and a peculiar taste therein. Yes, darling. Eve smiled above him, the smile of her impenetrable anglicism. 
"'Yes, darling, you're better.' The worst was that she had beaten him on the primary point. He had asserted that he was not ill. She had asserted that he was. She had been right, he wrong. He could not deny even to himself that he was ill. Not gravely, only somewhat. But supposing that he was gravely ill, supposing that old Plot would agree with all that Vega had said, it was conceivable. Misgivings shot through him. And Eve had him at her sweet mercy. He was helpless. She was easily the stronger. He perceived then what many a husband did without having perceived that his wife had a genuine individual existence and volition of her own, that she was more than his complement, his companion, the mother of his children. She lowered her head further and gave him a long, fresh, damp kiss. They were very intimate, with an intimacy that her enigmatic quality could not impair. He was annoyed, aggrieved, rebellious, but extremely happy in a weak sort of way. He hated and loved her. He despised and adored her, he reprehended and admired her all at once. What specially satisfied him was that he had her to himself. The always impinging children were not there. He liked this novel solitude of two. Darling, where is Charlie staying in Glasgow? Why? I want to write to him. Post's gone, my poor child. Then I shall telegraph. What about? Never mind. I shan't tell you the address until you promise to show me the telegram. I intend to be master of my own house, even if I am dying. Then he saw the telegram, which ran, Father ill in bed, what is the best motor-car to buy, love mother? The telegram astounded Mr. Prohack. "'Have you taken leave of your senses?' he cried. Then he laughed. What else was there to do? What else but the philosopher's laugh was adequate to the occasion? While Eve, with her own unrivalled hand, was preparing the bedroom for the night, Machin came in with a telegram. Without being asked to do so, Eve showed it to the sufferer. "'Tell him to buck up. Eagle six-cylinder. Everything fine here. Charles.' "'I think he might have sent his love,' said Eve. Mr. Prohack no longer attempted to fight against the situation, which was like a net winding itself round him. End of chapter 7